scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 56. Hear the word of our Lord. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they'd crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing our series this morning on the person and person, uh, the person and purpose of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Um, I really, I love Mark's Gospel because of its rapid pace. Uh, we see the word immediately a lot, as we see in our text this morning, um, because it's constantly moving from scene to scene in Jesus's ministry, moving like a freight train to get us to the cross. Um, Brad last week helped us in looking at the sending of the 12 uh, into ministry, and it, we also talked about this aside about um, the wickedness of King Herod and his killing of John the Baptist. Uh, in verses 14 to 16 that we read last week, there's this small discussion on who Jesus really was, and that's really picked up here in chapter 6, um, starting in verse 30 to the end of the chapter that we read today, uh, the question of who is this Jesus is the driving question behind the stories that we encounter this morning. And how we respond to that question is really of ultimate significance to each and every one of us here this morning. So please pray with me. Let's ask God to bless our time and our study of his word, and we'll jump into the text. Please unite your hearts with me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are good to us, that you've given us your word, that we can trust it, that it is true Uh, that in it you come after us and pursue us. Uh, We thank you that you are faithful, that you keep your promises, that you um, are present with us, and that you really are God. Uh, Help us this morning as we study your word together. It's in Christ's name we come. Amen. Uh, There's a a new little funny web series uh, that I I discovered over the past couple of weeks called Under a Rock with Tig Notaro. Um, Tignataro, for those of you who don't know, is a comedian, and the premise of this show is that even though she's a famous comedian, she doesn't really interact with pop culture very much, and so she really has a hard time uh, knowing and um, recognizing other famous people. Uh, So she has this show where she interviews famous people to just really discover who they are. They're about eight minutes each, um, and she begins each show this way. She says, today my guest is this person. Um, she has no idea who they are. And they come out, and they're used to everybody knowing who they are all the time, and Tig has no clue at all. Um, one actress even says in the show, you know, every big-headed celebrity needs to come on this show because it's such a humbling experience, uh, and it was for her. So they sit down, they talk, and through this series of clues and questions, Tig is trying to discover who this celebrity is. 
Now, she interviews Tony Shalhoub from Wings and Monk and Marvelous Miss Maisel. She interviews Julie Bowen, who was the mom from Modern Family, uh, Jason Vanderbeek, who was Dawson on Dawson's Creek, uh, Rich Eisen from ESPN, and Wycliffe Jean from the Fugees. Um, and it really is hilarious. She's, she has this really dry sense of humor, and she's trying to figure out who this is that she has in front of her. And even when she finds out sometimes, she still has no clue. Um, it's, it's really not unlike what the disciples are experiencing here with Jesus. They're trying to figure out who is this person that's in front of us. Who is this that they have in front of them? They spend all their time with Jesus. They travel around with him. They've seen him heal a withered man's hand. They've seen him drive out demons. They've seen him raise a little girl back to life. Uh, they've seen him calm a, word, a storm with just his words. Um, they've seen him drive out impure spirits. They even themselves have preached the good news. They've driven out impure spirits. They've made healings themselves because Jesus has given them authority to. And yet, when they see Jesus feed 5,000 people, which was in the story that we didn't read that we're going to reference this morning as well, um, and when they see him walk on water in verses 51 and 52, they still don't get it. They still have no idea who this Jesus is. The text tells us, Mark tells us, that they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They're with Jesus. They've seen him do amazing things, and even when he reveals himself to them, they still don't get it. And that's very true for many of us in here. We, too, can spend a lot of time with Jesus. We can be members of a church. We can know our Bibles really well. We can know a lot about theology and still miss who Jesus is and what he's about, especially when challenges or difficult circumstances arise. We can easily default into fear and anxiety and confusion and hard-heartedness towards Jesus instead of responding in faith, instead of responding in trust and obedience to him. It's really easy, as we see here, to be amazed by Jesus like the disciples are and not respond to him in faith. So today, through our text and the story leading up to it that I just referenced, um, we're going to ask just two questions this morning. Who is this Jesus, and how do we respond to him? Before we ask, who is this Jesus, we need to know what's going on in the text. Why is Jesus immediately sending the disciples on ahead of him to a boat in Bethsaida while he stays behind to pray? What's he immediately responding to? Um, back in verse 30, the 12 apostles, they gather around Jesus to report to him what's been going on, what they've been doing, the ministry they've been doing. Um, again, remember from verses 6 to 13 that Brad read last week, the 12 were sent out by Jesus to preach repentance, to drive out demons, and to heal sick people. So they come to talk to Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, let's go to a solitary place, let's go to a desert wilderness, so that we can have a little restful retreat there. So they're on their way to a retreat with Jesus, but when they arrive at their destination on the other side of the lake, there's at least 5,000 people that are waiting for them. The crowds, they've seen and they've heard what the disciples are doing, and they're really excited, and they, they run around the lake, and they get there before the disciples and Jesus do, and their plans for a restful retreat weekend with Jesus are completely foiled. Um, Jesus sees the large crowd, and verse 34 tells us, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them. Jesus sees this massive crowd of uninvited people and they're leaderless. We saw last week Herod and his wickedness is a terrible leader. Um, and that contrasts us with who Jesus is here. Jesus loves them. He's moved to concern for them and has compassion on them and begins to teach them. 
He begins to feed them with the word of God, with the message of the gospel and the message of the kingdom of God. As the day goes on, dinner time comes, and the disciples say this to Jesus. They say, this place is a desert. There's no food here. Why don't we send these people into the nearby villages so that they can buy themselves something to eat? And Jesus responds in the craziest way imaginable. He looks at the disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. The disciples are completely flabbergasted. This is a a totally unwelcome, a totally unexpected response from Jesus. And so the disciples basically sarcastically say to Jesus, are we supposed to spend half a year's wages on these strangers that we don't even know? And even if there was enough food in the nearby villages for for us to go buy, where are we going to get that kind of money? Where are we going to find that amount of food? And Jesus replies, how many loaves do you have? Why don't you go and see? And so they come back. They say, we have five loaves and two fish. They think they're really putting the matter to bed there. Like, see, Jesus, we won. We don't have to do this. This is impossible. We can't do this. And Jesus, as Jesus is, is undeterred by their confusion and their lack of resources. And he directs them to have everybody sit in groups of 50 and 100. Jesus prays. He blesses the food. And then he gives the food to his disciples to distribute to everyone. The picture here, Mark doesn't tell us how the miracle occurs, but the picture and the wording here is that Jesus keeps just giving food out. It just keeps coming. He just keeps giving them more and more food. And finally, in verse 42 and 43, we read this. They all ate and were satisfied. And they have 12 baskets, like wicker baskets that are like this tall, of food for leftovers. So it started with five loaves and two fish, this meager, this small, insignificant offering that the disciples could muster up together. It was multiplied to be enough food for more than 5,000 people to feast at this banquet in the wilderness that Jesus provides for them to have a surplus of leftovers. Jesus uses this tiny offering, and he explodes with grace all over his people, and it's all for the disciples' benefit. But as we'll see, as Mark later tells us, they don't understand what's going on here. Jesus takes this place of desert, this place of wilderness, and like God does with his people in the wilderness, in the book of Exodus, with manna and meat, God provides more than enough for his people. He provides a banquet in the desert to demonstrate that he really is God, that he's the one that supplies all of their needs. He's the same God that was present with and providing for his people when they left Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness so long ago. He uses even their meager gifts, and he uses them to provide beautifully and magnificently and wonderfully and overwhelmingly to his people. He even um, uses them. He even uses the disciples in blessing the people. He multiplies the effects of the gifts of his people and uses them here. So we get this glimpse here of who Jesus is. He's the God of the Exodus. He's the God of the Bible who miraculously provides for his people in the wilderness. And then John chapter 6, verse 15, gives us a hint as to why Jesus is sending the disciples away immediately as we read in Mark 6. Uh, John chapter 6 says this, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So he goes off to pray. He sends this kind of rowdy and uprising crowd away, and he sends the disciples immediately on, on the way to, um, to the other side of the lake because he knows his time hasn't yet come. 
And he knows that 5,000 versus 13 people can get out of hand pretty quickly. So Jesus immediately sends the disciples away. And so we're left asking this question, who is this Jesus? So we've seen, one, that he's divine. He's God himself. He's the God of the Old Testament. He not only has control over the natural world in a way that nobody else does, and that he takes nothing or very little in this case, and he multiplies it. This isn't a magic trick. This isn't an illusion. This isn't like in Star Wars where um, you know, Luke gets uh, hands Leia the dice from Han's ship and then it disappears when he goes away. It's not like the food disappeared in their bellies after they ate it. Um, it really is real food meant to bless his people because he is God come in the flesh. But we don't just see it in the, in the loaves. We don't just see it in the fish. We see it in verse 48 that we read. Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. We read that it's about the fourth watch of the night, between 3 to 6 a.m., and he went out to them walking on the lake. We're way too passive when we hear that and when we read that. Jesus was walking on the lake. He was walking, human being, on the lake. And Mark could have just finished his gospel there and said, See, case closed, I did it. Jesus is God, start worshiping now. Uh, But he doesn't. Jesus is walking on the lake. We should be freaking out like the disciples are. They see this and they scream in terror. They're afraid. They don't have any clue of what's going on. And this is what we see here in Jesus. Jesus um, is revealing to us who he is. Job chapter 9 tells us, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed. Jesus is revealing his divinity here in walking on the sea. He's treading on the sea himself. The disciples are struggling to row this boat because of the headwinds that are coming against them. And Jesus is just casually strolling, just unaffected by the wind, just walking right out to them, not fighting the wind at all. He's just walking out towards them, because he's unaffected by the laws of nature, because he created them. He's unaffected by them if he wants to be, because everything that we see, everything that we experience is created by him, except for sin. Um, So this Jesus, he's God come in the flesh. And then we see that further demonstrated when he comes close to his disciples in their fear, and he says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. He brings comfort to his disciples when he says, it is I. It's Greek for ego ami. It's the same language that God gave Moses when Moses asked him, who is it that I should tell the Israelites is sending me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. Jesus is using those very same words. Alarm bells should be going off in our heads. Jesus is saying, I am. I am the I am. So to make it really clear, Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh. I am the God Almighty. I'm the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God that created everything by the power of my word. That is who I am. I'm the God that parted the Red Sea, that that can walk on water. I'm the God that promised to rescue and to shepherd and to lead and to save my people from their sin and rebellion. That is who I am. I'm the God that promised to come and to take your heart of stone and to make it a heart of flesh. That's who I am. Jesus doesn't want us to miss this here. But he's also the God who sends his people to shape them. You know, why are the disciples in this difficult situation to begin with? 
You know, was it because of their pride? Was it because of their disobedience? Because of their lack of faithfulness to Jesus? No, we see that Jesus is the one that sent them into this headwind. They're exactly where Jesus wants them, precisely because of their obedience to him. Jesus sent them away. Jesus could have stopped the storm. He could have stopped the wind. He'd done it before, but he doesn't here. And so we have to ask the question, why? Because Jesus, in that moment, he isn't bringing his rescuing grace into the life of his disciples. He's bringing refining grace into their life. He's not after fixing their situation for them, solving their difficult circumstances. He's after them. He's after their hearts. So this is a a crazy principle for us to process here. Sometimes the difficulties in our lives are not because of our sin and not because of our bad choices, though that that does happen. But sometimes our difficulties and pain and, and trying circumstances are precisely because of our obedience to Jesus. And in those moments, we don't get to say, God has failed me. God is faithless. God has given up on me. God is unloving. God doesn't keep his promises. It's precisely because he's with us, because he's faithful, because he's, he loves us, that we might actually be experiencing difficulty because Jesus is after our hearts and he cares more about our hearts than he does about relieving our circumstances. His refining grace is actually wanting to go to work on you and to shape you into his likeness. If, you're, if we're honest, if I'm honest... When I face difficulty, um, I just want Jesus' rescuing grace. I just want to be free of the pain and the difficulty. Lord, get me out of this. Help me to experience no pain, no suffering, no trial, no difficulty. I would bet the same is true for you. Um, And it's okay to pray those things because one day Jesus will do away with sin and and death and suffering and, and, and desperate circumstances. But when he doesn't, how do we respond? You know, we can think, Jesus, following you should not be this hard. Uh, this shouldn't be that difficult. Following you shouldn't be this, this, this hard. But we need to remember in those moments, like we read earlier from the Psalms, that he hasn't left us. He didn't leave his disciples, and he is actively at work in us. His grace is actively at work in us, refining us and shaping us into his likeness. It's like when, when you're driving. It used to be before we had Google Maps and you know, real-time updated maps and traffic information on our phones, um, we'd just get in the car, and we would just drive, and we would use landmarks to tell us where we were going. Um, we would even get out those big, huge, giant maps where we'd print off our directions, and we'd chart our course, and we'd go. And we kind of expected to hit traffic. Um, but now, our phones reroute us when we hit traffic, and when we hit traffic, we get really angry because we want to be rerouted. Um, you know, we often want Jesus to reroute our difficulties and the trials and the, and the problems that we have in our lives. You know, again, we think, I don't deserve this. Um, I shouldn't be having to deal with this. It's too much. It's too difficult. It's too painful, Jesus. And what we need to remember in those moments is that the God of the universe, Jesus himself, has not left you. He's still faithful. He's more concerned about you in your heart and providing his grace for you, especially in those difficult and trying circumstances. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. 
It doesn't mean, God, thank you for this difficult circumstance. This is so great. I'm so glad I have cancer. That is not what it means at all. But it does mean that Jesus wants to grab hold of your heart in the midst of difficulties and produce faith in you and produce his love and his character in you. He wants you, even in the midst of your difficulties, to rely on and rest in him. But we also see that this Jesus is the God who brings his presence and brings his comfort even in the midst of difficulty. Jesus comes alongside his disciples on the sea. When they're afraid and they think it's a ghost, Jesus immediately, it says that he sees their fear and their terror, and immediately he says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. He comes alongside them. He's present with them. They are not alone, and he brings comfort. Joe Novenson says it this way. He says, the presence of Jesus with us in the storm is more needed by us than the removal of the storm. The I am, the God of the universe, the God of grace has invaded the disciples' lives and they are not alone. And the same is true for you who are his this morning. The God of grace, the I am, the creator of the universe has invaded your life and no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, no matter the pain, no matter the difficulty, he has invaded your life with his grace and you are not alone. We need to rehearse this day in and day out and preach this to ourselves every moment of the day that when you're in the doctor's office and you get a difficult diagnosis, you need to remember the God of grace has invaded my life. I am not alone. When you're feeling alone and hurt and sad and angry, you need to remember the God of grace has invaded my life. I am not alone. When your children, it seems like they've planned like how to plot against you that day to like who's going to make you the most crazy in which moment, um, and, and you're fighting before you go to bed, you need to walk into the hallway and say, the God of grace has invaded my life. I am not alone. When your body's failing, when you're in difficult health, you need to remember the God of grace has invaded my life. I am not alone. That's the defining reality here for us. God has not removed his presence from you. He's with you in this storm, and he's after you. He's after us. He wants our hearts, and he wants us to know that we're experiencing his grace, his refining grace, not his rescuing grace, even in the midst of those difficulties. He's the one true God of the Bible, the God in the flesh that sends us to shape us, that sends us Um, to make us his. He's the one who is present with us. He's the one who brings comfort to us. He is God alone. So, how do we respond to him? Well, look at how the disciples respond. They're terrified. You know, once they see it's Jesus, Mark tells us they're amazed. And that sounds really good at first, except for that it isn't. Um, And we see why Mark tells us that. You know, it's like it's the first time the disciples see Um, something happening miraculously with Jesus. It's like the first time that they experience his his presence and and when they experience difficulty and he enters in. Um, They seem totally unprepared for this moment, and they're amazed. And we know that it's not a good thing because of Mark's explanation. They were amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't get it yet. They didn't understand this was God Almighty with them in the boat. They they didn't understand this was the one who came to seek and to save the lost, that he's the good shepherd who came to lay down his life for his people. 
he, they didn't understand that this was the Messiah, the King, the one who promised to deliver them from their sins and save them from them. They didn't understand this was the one who fed his people in the, in the wilderness, just as he had done minutes ago with them in feeding and making this banquet of loaves and fishes in the wilderness. They were amazed, but they shouldn't have been. Being amazed is a way to try to kind of process um, something that you don't have categories mentally to explain. But responding in faith, as Paul Tripp says, it's a commitment of your heart and a reality that changes the way you live your life. You know, I, I don't know if you've seen the, the old story about the guy that uh, rode his unicycle across the Niagara Falls. Like, I can be amazed by that. Um, that is amazing to see a guy ride a unicycle um, like Jeff does. Uh, and ride it like on a tiny piece of thread and not fall off and plummet to his death. Like, that's pretty amazing. Um, But it's another thing entirely for me to trust this guy and to exercise faith and to get on his back and to ride across with him. Um, I'm amazed that this this guy can do this, this magnificent feat. But you will not catch me jumping on this guy's back riding across Niagara Falls, even though I've seen him do it and be successful at it. I mean, do you see the difference there between amazement and faith? They're two different things. Mark says the reason for that is because the disciples' hearts are hardened. It's a word picture given to us to help us see that they're resistant to change. They are not going to be impacted by the evidence and the circumstances around them. It's really interesting for us that these words are used about the disciples, and they're the same words used about the crowds in in chapter 3 that we read several months ago about those whose hearts were hardened towards Jesus and wanted to kill him. Um, Even though the disciples shouldn't have been surprised, they shouldn't have been amazed, they should have responded in faith, trusting that this is the God of the Bible who loves them, is present with them, who brings comfort to them, that supplies all of their needs, that's in control of creation, and the laws of physics don't apply to to him. They don't. And you know what the most amazing thing is about this? Is that Jesus doesn't reject them in that moment. When they're hard-hearted, Jesus doesn't say, I can't believe you guys don't get this yet. Like, really, what more do I have to do to prove to you who I am? I'm starting over. You guys are fired. I'm going to get a new 12 who are actually going to believe in me and love me and follow me. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't ridicule them. He remains faithful to them. Because he loves them. Because he's more interested in transforming their hearts and helping them know him and love him and follow him than he is in anything else. And Jesus does the same exact thing to us when we're hard-hearted towards him. Um, He gets in the boat because he wants to continue to shape their lives and is patient with them. When we are hard-hearted, when we are slow to faith, when we are slow to obedience, Jesus acts the same way towards us. He is patient. He is gracious. He's generous. He continues to teach us. He continues to be with us. He doesn't leave us. He continues to comfort us. He continues to shape us. He continues to give his grace to us. He continues to love us. Because he wants us to understand the lesson of the loaves here. That he's the one alone that will satisfy us. That he's the one that is God and will rescue us and refine us and make us more like him. And then he invites us to reflect him in our response toward those around us 
who are hard-hearted and slow to faith and slow to obedience. How often do we dismiss people and just completely write off people because they just, they don't get it yet? You know, how often do we say to our children, this is the thousandth time, I'm so tired, I'm done, I'm through this. When are you going to get it? Jesus is patient with us and our slowness to understand and our hard-heartedness. And so why would we not be patient with those around us who don't get it yet? I think the problem for many of us is not that we're not or that we're dissatisfied with Jesus, but it's that we're too easily satisfied, as C.S. Lewis says. You know how often um, many maybe you've had this experience with with your kids or with uh, other little kids that you know. You get them a gift for Christmas or their birthday, and they're really excited about it, and they open it. Um, and then it's not just a few minutes before they totally discarded the gift. They've just thrown it around, and they're playing with the box. Um, we've been given the greatest gift ever, the most perfect, the most wonderful, the most miraculous gift, one we couldn't earn, one we didn't deserve, one we couldn't achieve on our own. We've received the gift of Jesus' love and his sacrifice, and his rescuing grace that takes us from broken, sinful people that want nothing to do with God, and through faith and repentance and the work of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are made from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, and they're shapeable now by him. And he works them, and he makes them uh, his, and he helps us to respond in love and in faith, trusting him, loving him, following him, pursuing him, being obedient to him because we've been taken from life, from death to life. We've been taken from orphans to dearly loved children. But if we're honest, most of us, most of the time, are content to just play with the box, to content to just play with this life that we've been given, and we're content to make our own definitions of happiness. And when Jesus doesn't achieve those for us, we get frustrated. So the question, how should we respond to Jesus? We shouldn't just be amazed like a magician doing card tricks for us close up. We should fall on our faces and worship. We should give ourselves over completely to the one who came for us, to the one who sets all things right, to the one who's going to undo sin and get rid of sickness and death and pain and suffering once and for all, to the one that through his death and resurrection came to make us his, came to make us his children because he loves us. So this morning, where is your heart hardened toward Jesus? Where do you need to see him for who he really is and what he's done? He loves you. He gave his life for you to make you his. He walked on water to show you who he is. He fed the 5,000 so that you would know the only place I'm going to be filled, the only place I'm going to be satisfied, the only place I'm going to have all of my longings met is in this Jesus. So how are you responding to this Jesus today? Are you amazed? Or has he changed the trajectory of your life so that you can't help but follow and serve him and give yourself to him? Ask him this morning to give you eyes of faith, to soften your heart. Jesus was patient and gracious with his disciples in their hard-heartedness, and we too can experience his patience and grace and comfort and presence because he loves his people. He is the patient one with people who are hard-hearted and have difficulty in trusting him because he loves us. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your love and your kindness towards us. 
We thank you that you came to pursue us, to seek and to save us. We thank you that you are the patient teacher of hard-hearted people. Forgive us for failing to love you and to trust you, for failing to see who you really are. Please don't leave us. We know that you won't. We're afraid that you might. But we trust your word. We trust Psalm 77. We trust the stories about you coming to be with your people bringing comfort, bringing your presence, saying, I am with you. Father, we need you. We love you. We praise you for our time together. In Christ's name we come. Amen. Come now to our